that means that, you know, I have to live with my parents because I can't afford rent. Plus, you know, I'm sort of a recent college graduate, so not making a whole lot of money at this job that I have because I work for a nonprofit organization. So sometimes to make extra money, I do translations uh, for this one business consultancy. You know, I went to school in the States, so my English is good enough for me to do translations. What these people do is they bring consultants from the U.S. and from Europe to teach workshops and seminars here in Moscow. And whenever they do that, they call me up and they pay me pretty well. They talk, I translate, and everyone's happy. A couple of weeks ago, I was translating this one guy from the U.S. And he came to Moscow to teach a seminar on how to use social media like Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms for marketing and brand promotion. And, you know, social media is kind of new in Russia still, and mo the, mostly the people that were at the seminar were from, like, newly emerging, like, small businesses from, you know, like, small cities around Russia. So I could tell that some of them, you know, don't even know what Facebook is. But he was so unprepared that he didn't even bother to find out that there is a Russian equivalent to Facebook, which is called Kontakte. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. It has the same interface and the same, like, menu and, like, everything's the same. But most Russian people are actually on Kontakte as opposed to Facebook. So someone from the audience actually asked this guy whether he knew about this Russian Facebook. And so I translated, and he said, oh, I've never heard about that before. But I didn't want to translate that because I didn't want people to think he's a total idiot and they're wasting their time there. Um, so I kind of said that, you know, I basically said that, yes, he's heard of it pretty much. But he was talking about Facebook specifically because Facebook is more of a global um, platform, global site. So, so you saved uses. his ass. Huh? So you saved his ass. Pretty much, I did save his ass. You know, I'm good at saving people's ass. After his lecture was over, um, he came up to me and said, thanks, this was great. Um, and hey, by the way, do you want to go out to dinner with me? And at first I was a little surprised because, you know, I'd never done something like this. I'd never, I'd never gone out with one of, one of these guys. But, you know, I mean, I was really curious about him and how he got to be a Facebook consultant to, and, you know, travel the world and do this. So I said, sure, why not? Since I knew he would be paying, uh, <clears throat> I took him to this really fancy fish restaurant on the street where his hotel was, which also happens to be like one of the most expensive streets in Moscow. It's like the central street that runs from a train station all the way down to the Red Square. After dinner, uh, he asked me whether we should cross the street to his hotel uh, and get some drinks at the hotel bar and at this point I actually started liking this guy because you know I'm kind of into older guys and he's in his late 30s and he turned out to be pretty funny and smart and interesting and we crossed the street to his hotel um, he's staying at the Marriott across the street so we go to the bar and order a drink there and then all of a sudden this woman walks up in this like totally hideous dress and huge fake boobs and like um, <clears throat> super high heels and I can tell that out of the corner of his eye he's actually like checking her out and I'm like well that's 
you know, messed up because the girl's obviously a prostitute, a high-class prostitute, but I can tell she is. She sits next to us and all of a sudden, right in the middle of my sentence, he turns around and starts talking to her. And I'm like, I can't believe this. This is so fucking rude. And he's trying to say, hello, you know, stupid shit, like, hello, I like your dress. And she's wearing, like, this totally hideous, disgusting dress. Um, but you can tell it's just, like, a lame pickup line. But anyway, the point is that she doesn't speak English. And she says, which means, sorry, I don't speak English. And then he turns around to me and asks me if I can translate. And I'm like, okay. Like I said, okay, even though I didn't want to, because even though I was really offended, but I was so surprised, I just said, okay. I mean, this was so unexpected. I mean, I was in total shock that, you know, I'm just, this was like an absurd situation. I'm translating for this American dude who's trying to use his lame pickup lines on this Russian prostitute. At some point, he actually asks her, what do you do? And I'm like, oh shit, here it comes. And she says, I can come upstairs with you for 20,000 rubles. And I'm like, okay, I got I got to come up with something. I can I can't tell him that. You know, he's sitting there eager for her answer. And I just say the first thing that comes to my mind. I say, "Oh, she really likes her haircut." And he's like, "Oh, really?" And you know, he gets so happy and excited about it. And so this girl turns to me and says, "I have to make a phone call." So she gets up and leaves. Maybe she went to call her pimp or something. I don't know. So when this girl gets up and leaves, you know, I'm half expecting an apology from this guy, but he doesn't say anything. I mean, he is like so into this and so enjoying the situation. And I'm like, okay, I get up and I'm like, you know, I seem angry and I'm like, okay, fine. I have to go. Good night. Thanks for everything. And then he turns around and says, no, 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 you can't go right now. I feel like I'm getting somewhere with this lady. I need you to translate for me, you know? And he sounds so desperate. And I'm like, who do you think you are? I mean, and he's like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. Of course, of course. I didn't think about it. Of course, I'll pay you. And I'm like, I can't fucking believe this. This guy thinks that the only thing wrong with this whole situation is the fact that he forgot to offer to pay me. But, but And before I get to say anything, he says, I'll pay you 10,000 rubles. And at that moment, I was like, huh, okay, wait a second. 10,000 rubles, that's actually quite a lot. It's 350 bucks, and I can pay my cable and my credit card bill with this. So I'm going over all these calculations in my mind. And before I get to finally decide, he actually says something that totally blows my mind. He's like, well, you know, I mean, I really need you because I think I'm going to score with this girl, but, you know, I'm afraid that without you, I'll screw it up. And I'm like, oh, this guy is good. He is totally clueless. He doesn't even realize she's a prostitute. This is actually funny. And I said, okay, I'll stay and do it for 10,000 rubles. And then she comes back to the bar. And this girl's name is Natasha, by the way, which is like a perfect prostitute name. And, you know, she seems really busy. And she says, okay, so are we going upstairs or no? And since I'm also interested in getting my money and getting the hell out of there as soon as possible, I turn around to this guy and say, okay, you know, this is just your lucky day because she's already suggesting you guys go up to your room and have a drink there. And I'm like, okay, great. I guess I'm done here. Have fun. But he leans over and whispers to me, 
No, no, that doesn't mean you're done yet. You have to come upstairs with us and translate until I seal the deal. And I'm like, what? This is so ridiculous. Seal the deal? She is a prostitute. We all go to the elevator and we start going upstairs and no one's really talking or saying anything. And I'm standing there, you know, furious, cursing myself and cursing the day I actually learned English. So I go up to his room and this girl goes into the bathroom and he has me call room service and order some drinks while he's, you know, looking at himself in the mirror, fixing his amazing haircut, checking himself out basically. So when the drinks come, the bathroom door opens and she walks out of there totally naked. And he's like looking at her like, wow, you know, I can tell his mouth is watering already. But then she sees that I'm still in the room and she kind of gives me this weird look. And then she's like, well, you know, this is going to be a threesome. You're going to have to pay me double. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if this guy finds out she's a prostitute, he's not going to pay me. So I have to keep playing this game. And he's like, so excited like a kid, like, what did she say? What did she say? And I turn around to him and say, well, you know, she's actually very glad that I'm here so that you can explain to her exactly what you want her to do. And he's like, oh, really? Well, in that case, and he just totally goes into it. He turns out to be a perv. I mean, for the next 15 minutes, I'm translating things like bend over, spread your legs, lift your legs, get down, um, let's switch open your mouth, <clears throat> jump up and down on the bed, um, wrap yourself up in the curtain, go to the bathroom, bend over and grab the toilet seat, um, crawl on the floor like a dog, pretend you're a fire truck. And I just translated everything. Ложись на спину, перевернись, подними ноги, подними руки. Зайди в ванну и нагнись над туалетом. Притворись, как будто ты э, пожарная машина. Finally, she says, okay, time's up, I need my money. And I'm like, oh, thank God, I don't think I could take any more of this. And he's like, oh, what did she say? And I'm like, oh, you know, she needs to take a break. And he's like, oh, okay. And I'm like, you know, I think this is a really good opportunity for me to leave because I really think you've got it all under control. I think you've sealed the deal, dude. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, of course. I mean, I couldn't thank you enough. Thank you so much. This was great. I couldn't have done it without you. And I mean, he's so grateful. I can see he almost wants to hug me. And I'm like, okay, just give me my money and I really need to go. So he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, no problem. And... So he takes out his wallet and he takes out 10,000 rubles and hands it over to me. But then when Natasha sees his wallet, she actually gets pretty angry and starts like yelling and rushing and snapping her fingers like, well, where's my money? <clears throat> and he's like, well, what's she saying? And I start laughing and I'm like, oh man, you're not going to believe this. She actually wants to do it all over again. And he's like, oh yeah, wow. So he's like looking in the mirror again, adjusting his hair, and I put the money in my purse and I wave goodbye to Natasha and I smile and I leave. 
I walk to the elevator like I just did a normal job, but once I leave the hotel and once I'm on Tverskaya again, I start laughing and I walk all the way to the Red Square laughing the whole way. I must have looked like a crazy person. I first heard about Tatono when I was, uh, oh, you know, at least 10 years ago or so, and I read him in English translation. But obviously you lose a lot in, in, in translation. This is an old recording. The woman's name is Sonia Somak. I met her online about five years ago when she was the president of the Yahoo fan club for the Russian writer Andrei Platonov. Platono is loved by many. Many people are obviously drawn to him. And first of all, I think it's because one senses the goodness and, and the love in his stories. You cannot help but um, love him. Not only as a writer. I, I would bet that uh, many people would find themselves comforted by him. And this is strange, because the the landscape, the things he writes about are seem so poor and, and devastated. It's, um, it's, it's something, his world is very concrete. His appeal isn't the, the appeal of a political dissident. Um, it's even though his work, you can you can construct a, a marvelous critique of the Soviet society and communism, and uh, he, he did write stories which were, I think, um, which had obvious satirical features. But I, I think that apart from a, a literary appeal, which is which is very strong and, and present and to me, one of primary things. I think that part of the appeal of Platonov is, is almost religious. And this is <laughs> a religious appeal for people who either don't have faith or are forbidden or untaught to believe because uh, there, is, there is something almost um, of a holy fool which is a religious concept in, in, in Russia, a Eurodivi in, uh, in him. His stories are full of love, comfort, hope, and, and the promise of a, of a better world, which won't just come as Jerusalem will <laughs> in, in religion. It will be constructed by people. And um, he did have this ultimate faith in building. It, it's almost a substitute for for Christ, not not in Platon as a person, but um, that that gesture of of love in his stories. 
He sees people as, as lonely, alone, very small. His heroes are peasants. His heroes are human ants, people of no consequence. They're often educated, especially the men. But they're still, they're, they're, they're people who have emerged from the anonymous, amorphous peasantry. People who were, who were serfs, whose grandparents were serfs. And uh, he feels for them. Um, I forget now which um, essayist or translator said uh, that the main thing in Platonov is his compassion, which is uh, resigned and hopeless. But um, it extends to, and those are his words, all the poor rejected objects, all the small, unknown, forgotten things. This magnificently generous um, feel, affection for the world, uh, doesn't preclude him from seeing how poor and how devastated the world is. The stories in in, uh, The Fierce and Beautiful World, for instance, I don't know if you noticed, but they all end with with hope. It, it, it doesn't always end with with a happy end. And even the ones that seem to end happily leave you somehow um, feeling sorrowful, but not depressed. Not depressed. You know, they they say that he invent, invented or wrote about an alternate reality. He's an alternate realist. But not like Kafka, for instance, <laughs> where you sink in, in those nightmares. There is this, this everlasting gleam of hope, of future in Platon. One of my favorite things about traveling is experiencing freedom. I'm talking about the basic freedom most citizens of the world enjoy. The freedom to walk down a street or through a park drinking a cold beer without fear of intimidation or molestation by the man. Recently, I traveled to Russia and I was pleased to discover that it too is a freedom-loving country. There are beer stands on almost every corner. Of course, I want to partake of some of the local libations, but, well, I can't pronounce anything, so I stick to Tuberg, which is a Danish beer and unfortunately about 20 rubles more expensive than everything Russian, but I'm not going to let the language barrier get me down. Beer is beer. And by the second night, my host Charles and I are stopping at almost every corner stand. I even buy a giant glass bottle of vodka in the shape of a Russian babushka doll, much to Charles' dismay. Only the worst kind of tourists buy those things, he says. But I don't let him talk me out of it. I am intoxicated with freedom. I have Charles take me to the Moscow Institute for Economics. 
which is where Andrei Platonov's story Dazen begins. We sit on one of the large stone blocks and watch the students congregate in the late evening light. Twilight lasts until about 11 o'clock this time of year. Charles calls this phenomenon eternal happy hour. And truly, there is no better description. As we watch the students, I tell Charles about Platonov's story. His hero, Nazar Shagateyev, is attending a graduation party in the courtyard of the Institute. There is an attractive woman who makes eyes at him, but he's not interested. There's dancing, music, drinking, and confetti. Everyone is having a good time. Except for one woman who Platonov says has a face like a horse. Now, Nazar is so overcome with compassion for this woman, he ends up going home with her. And even though she's pregnant with another man's child, he marries her. The way Platonov intertwines compassion and love is unlike anything else I've ever read. But as I'm explaining this to Charles, a man walks up to us and gestures for a cigarette. Charles tells him in Russian that neither one of us smokes. Then the man launches into something else. He points at me and waves his hands in the air. He looks a bit too disheveled to be a student. His t-shirt has something written on it, but I can't make out if the characters are Roman or Cyrillic. It looks like it was done by hand with glue and sparkles. Charles says a few things to him in Russian, and eventually he goes away. What did he say? I ask. Apparently the cigarette was just a ruse. He really just wanted to tell us how annoying we are, Charles says. He didn't approve of our loud talking. In fact, he called us ugly Americans. This totally ruins my Platonov moment. And for a second, I think I actually might start crying. So Charles suggests we leave and go to Red Square. When we arrive, Charles says we should finish our beers before walking in, for even though it is legal to drink out in the open, Red Square is hallowed ground. I think the guy from the university must have rattled him, but I don't want to stop drinking, so I promise I will not talk loud and that I will keep my beer out of sight. As we walk into the square, I'm overcome with emotion. I realize that this is where all the action took place. The marches, the parades, the show trials. And then we come to Lenin's tomb, which I recognize from oh so many photographs. And up close, I see that what I had always thought were velvet ropes cordoning the whole thing off are actually chains. Now, for some reason, I decide to pretend that I'm Patrick Swayze in Red Dawn. I take a running jump at the tomb shouting, Wolverines! And when I get to the chain rope, I jump on it and spin around in the air pretending my Tuberg is a machine gun. But my bag catches on the chain and rips open, and my poor babushka vodka doll bottle goes flying. And when it hits the concrete, it explodes. Two men start walking briskly towards us, gesturing and yelling. Charles hisses, put that beer away now. 
I unbutton my jeans and ram the bottle into my underwear. Don't say anything, he says as he bends down and starts picking up the pieces of glass. The two men come over. I can't tell if they're police officers, but they are definitely angry. They exchange words with Charles, who manages to remain cool for the entire encounter. I just kind of stand there, embarrassed, trying to hide the fact that I have a giant green tuber poking out of my crotch. One of them gives me a look that says, I feel so sorry for you, but not in a good way. I want to help Charles clean up the glass, but I can't really bend over because of the bottle, and I'm scared he'll get mad at me if I take it out. Once Charles gathers up all the glass shards, we walk away. He doesn't tell me what the men said, but I don't ask him either. I spend a lot of time outside on the stoop. In the summer, I'm always there, almost every night. But I'm very careful, though, when it comes to alcohol, as New York City is not part of the free world. As soon as I moved in, I purchased a set of beer mugs, the kind you can store in the freezer to keep cold. And whenever I have friends over, I make sure everyone uses one of these mugs and that the beer bottles stay in the hallway of the building, out of sight. I went three years without a single incident. But then, one day last summer, I had a run-in with a pair of undercover cops, and I was almost hauled away in handcuffs. It was a very hot Friday afternoon. My friend Tom came by for a visit. I took him to the beer room at the Whole Foods on Houston, where they sell tap beer in reusable brown glass growlers. This is actually how New Yorkers used to drink their beer. On warm days, you would see children scurrying down the street, ferrying pails of tavern beer for thirsty adults. This practice was called rushing the growler. Since my friend Tom is a fan of local breweries like Six Point and Captain Lawrence, I knew he would like the idea of getting a half gallon of fresh beer for less than $10. So we rushed a growler to my stoop. As I said, it was hot. One of the hottest days of the year, in fact. The hallway of my building was like a brick oven. So I decided we would keep the growler on the stoop with us. I just didn't think it would be a problem. But in less than an hour, a car pulls up in front of us and two men jump out. One is wearing a t-shirt with the Playboy bunny on it. The other guy has his badge on a gold chain around his neck. You can tell he watches a lot of cop shows on TV. I want to see some ID now, the TV cop shouts. Tom just shakes his head in disbelief. This would never happen in Brooklyn, he says. A wave of righteous indignation washes over me, and I snarl back, What seems to be the problem, officer? Who do you think you are, he says. We've driven by this place four times now, and you haven't moved. Every time we fly by, you're drinking beer in frosty mugs. 
It's like you're mocking us. I try to remain calm. Well, I happen to live here, officer, I say, and it's just too hot to stay indoors. I don't have air conditioning, I lie. And my friend here just got back from a long work trip, another lie. I can't believe you are harassing us on my own front stoop. This only makes him angrier. He points to the bottle. Who do you think you are? You have a giant bottle with the word beer on it. And you think we're just going to let that slide? I said I want to see some ID. For the first time, I noticed that the growler has beer written on it in giant white letters. But I'm not sure if this is why he's angry. Because he keeps glaring at the frosty beer mugs. I pick up the bottle and the glasses and open the front door. I have to go get my ID from upstairs, I say. He's so mad, he doesn't even realize that I've walked away with all the evidence. I take everything up to my apartment and grab my passport. When I come back downstairs, the cop with the Playboy shirt is writing Tom a ticket. I hand the TV guy my passport. What is this, he says. Don't you have American ID? I just laugh in his face. I don't know where my license is, another lie. And I just got back from France, the truth. Have you ever been there, I ask, looking him directly in the eye. You can actually walk around with a beer in your hand and no one will hassle you. The cop in the Playboy shirt looks up and says, well, move to France then. Now the TV cop is really mad. Look, you're insulting my partner, he says. You know, he just got back from Afghanistan, where he was fighting for your freedom. And you're going to stand here and insult him? If you want to be the ass clown, the TV cop says, I'm going to take you in. He pulls out a pair of handcuffs as if to make his point. The guy in the Playboy shirt really does look like he just got back from Afghanistan. And the idea of getting into a car with these goons is actually frightening. Even if it's just half a block. So I decide to shut my mouth, and I sit down next to Tom, and I wait for our tickets. Just before I left for Russia, I got a letter from the courthouse. The ticket... I got that hot afternoon had been declared invalid and my $25 money order was returned to me. So in the end, everything balanced out. I spent that $25 on a second Babushka Vodka Doll bottle to replace the one I broke in Red Square. was his pseudonym. He was born as Andrei Platonovich Klimentov. Uh, born very poor, working class. The eldest of ten children and uh, eleven actually. So he was uh, he was forced to work, start working very early at fifteen uh, on the railway, helping his father. Uh, he did service in the Red Army. And uh, 
went on to university after that, getting a degree in electrical engineering, which uh, it, it's a profession that he, he gave to many of his heroes of early communism. And uh, he was uh, he was a he was a communist. He he certainly was an uh, idealist who believed in the socialist utopia, which is very ironic when uh, when you think about uh, how his career developed or failed to develop because of the persecution he was uh, subjected to. By the literary powers and uh, even Stalin, uh, they say that Stalin read read uh, some of his stories at least one to future U.S. and uh, he was uh, he wrote in the margin, uh, um, "Scum, he should be taught a lesson." But they also say that uh, that's what saved him from. Gulags that he he wasn't read he wasn't published and wasn't read and so very few people knew about him otherwise who knows he he may have ended up like so many others Khans during the war the Second World War he volunteered as a war correspondent and uh, published some stories for children and for adults but um, in 1946 after he published his story Homecoming sometimes translated as The Return about a soldier who comes home from the front uh, he he was attacked anew to his complete astonishment and uh, this new wave of criticism marked uh, the end of his writing, his publishing career. And he died a few years after that in 1951 of tuberculosis, which he got from his son, who was sent to a labor camp as a 15-year-old boy. Platonov nursed his son, who was his only child. The son died. And Platono too suffered from tuberculosis until the end of his life. He worked or slept at least uh, in uh, in a janitor's room at the literary institute, and uh, he could be seen sweeping the courtyard, <laughs> and students were passing him by, uh, you know, probably not even noticing him. I uh, look. Internet to word beach. It means Tierva in Russia. Tierva uh, because uh, now in Russia is very popular uh, from young woman to be a beach. It means uh, very. It's good uh, because it's uh, independent and uh, yes. And I begin to look internet beach and was very. Uh, wondered when I saw that we have a courses, and I decided to go and watched what about these courses. And I like very much when I saw the this is a man who teach the girls how to be a bitch. That's filmmaker Alina Rudnitska. 
A couple of months ago, I downloaded her documentary, Bitch Academy, a fierce and beautiful little movie about a group of women who go to Bitch Academy with the hope that they can learn how to better snag a rich husband. I was very grateful that Alina had some time to meet with me when I was in St. Petersburg because I had a few questions about her film. I was especially curious about the guy who runs Bitch Academy, Vladimir Rakowski. When I saw him at first time, I watched and understand that it's good for filming. <laughs> because uh, he, is, uh, he likes himself uh, and he wants to be uh, popular. And he likes when he uh, attention for him. He was uh, he's worked in MCS. It means uh, the nine one one in America emergency. Yes, he worked uh, the Russia in Russia, and he said that uh, too many women uh, called it in this emergency and asked to help. And when he was retired, he decided to open the school uh, and uh, to teach this woman how to be a bitch. And he, now he, have, uh, he has uh, a big success. The most popular, ah, this course is, is most popular among uh, women near 30, because uh, uh, women, uh, for example, uh, have divorce and, uh, and a bad uh, relationships between men, for example. And they wanted to change something inside of them. When I uh, spoke with this woman and I asked them what they tried to find, uh, of course many of them uh, would like to find uh, the man with good uh, social status, with uh, uh, maybe rich, no, of course rich man, because nobody don't want to work. Most of the women that Alina films at Bitch Academy are in their late 30s. Many of them look kind of tired. You get the sense that maybe their mom signed them up for the class. But Vladimir is determined to teach them all. He gets them all to strut around in lingerie. He shows them how to eat a banana the sexy way. And most importantly, he tries to teach them how to ask a man for money, like a bitch. Alina's film ends with Vladimir giving his wannabe bitches one very important piece of advice. And this is what I really wanted to talk to Alina about. Um, the end of this classes, he said in Russia, самый большой секрет то, что мужчины все понимают и что мужчину обмануть невозможно. And that means in English. And the biggest secret is the men understand everything, and the woman could not lie to men. So is it really that the man knows everything, or is it that you need to, to be a good bitch, you need to pretend that the man knows everything? Is it... Is it yes. Which, yes. Which one, both? Um, the second. Maybe the second. So have you learned how to be a better bitch from the experience? No, when I begin to listen all this, what happens 
in this classes, I begin to be crazy because I look uh, in my husband and don't understand how to speak with them. And we begin to quarrel and he said, you should be shooting, not to listen this. It's not good for you because um, I begin to, what he said, to think about myself. Oh, I'm not right. Uh, I don't know how to speak with men. And oh, I have very mistakes with my husband, for example, and begin to do how to change situation. But of course, it's, uh, for me, it's impossible. <laughs> and after all, I begin to wall and uh, only shoot it. <laughs> because uh, I'm afraid to divorce <laughs> after my shooting. <laughs> As soon as the news broke about the U.S. arresting those 10 Russian sleeper agents, I was immediately, the first thing I thought of was like, oh no, I hope Benjamin's okay. I knew that you were in Moscow at the time, and I was really concerned that you were going to get arrested. Why would I get arrested? Well, when these things happen, when, they, when the United States grabs spies from another country, and it's usually Russia, the thing that happens is that country retaliates by going out and rounding up a bunch of suspected American spies. And, you know, you were there and, I mean, let's face it, your, your cover kind of sucks. <laughs> I, I gotta admit, I'm actually still kind of surprised they didn't round you up. Anyways, isn't this supposedly uh, something that was addressed in the spy swap, though? That's right. This was part of the arrangement that was made, was that there wasn't going to be any what you, I don't know, might call extracurricular retaliation, that we had these 10 sleeper agents, they had four of our sleeper agents, and there was just going to be a straight swap. What have you heard about these, these agents? Well, one of, my, one of my drinking buddies is from the CIA, and we went out and talked about this after the whole thing went down, and I got to tell you, he, he was apoplectic about this deal because he does not think that the stuff that's been reported in the media is right. He thinks that they really were valuable and he's pissed that we didn't really, I mean, we made this deal. We did not properly interrogate them. We did not. There was no waterboarding. <laughs> I'm not even talking about like waterboarding or torturing people. I'm just saying like they basically rounded them up, made this deal and, you know, sent them back. But according to my friend, he is very concerned that this is like, serious, you know, national security level stuff. Take one example, the, the, the girl Anna Chapman, the one that the media is in love with because she's supposedly hot. Her, her story was she was in New York, she was doing real estate deals. She's like flirting with hot New York businessmen and trying to get some like information. Everybody thinks that it's no value, but my friend knows that she had Hollywood connections and my friend knows that one of those connections was an up-and-coming director named Dan Bradley. And Bradley's project is the remake of Red Dawn. They're remaking Red Dawn? Dude, like, do you pay attention to movies or popular culture at all? 
all Hollywood does now is remake movies, and they're not just remaking movies from the 50s, like they used to. They're remaking movies from the 80s, apparently, because our attention spans are so goddamn short. They, they just remade Clash of the Titans. They just remade Nightmare on Elm Street. Karate Kid. Robocop. So the Wolverines are coming back. Yeah. The Wolverines are coming back, and this is why my friend at the CIA is so concerned. Why? Why? Well, this is going to blow your mind, but Hollywood did not make Red Dawn. The CIA made Red Dawn. That was a CIA project. In 1984, height of the Cold War, Reagan, whole deal. We were worried that the Russians were coming, right? The Soviets. The CIA thought that there may very well be a land war on our own soil. So Red Dawn was a propaganda movie aimed at the youth of America that if this went down, they would resist. In fact, Red Dawn was the first use of the rating PG-13 because not enough teenagers would see the movie. If it, if it had gotten an R rating. They didn't want to cut out the violence because those are the types of images that have a psychological effect that they were looking for. So the CIA rammed through the MPAA this new rating system, PG-13, which would allow young teenagers to go see this movie by themselves. But you know, the, the image that sticks for me still today, to this day, is the opening scene where the teacher goes out and confronts the um, paratroopers and they, you know, they just start shooting up the school, the classroom. But, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I would always have fantasies of, like, you know, armed bandits or, or aliens coming and, you know, taking over the school and I would, like, you know, resist and, and, you know, save the pretty girls. But in that opening scene, like, so they kill the teacher, but they also kill, like, this nerd kid, and he's, like, hanging out over the window, so I was like, oh my god, that would totally be me. (laughs) (laughs) We remember it to this day, because it was intended to be that way. Yeah, I I just, I never saw myself as Wolverine material, but I don't understand how this movie could work today. I mean, the Russians invading, that, 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 like, that just doesn't make any sense anymore. Well, that's, the thing with the new movie is that the villain is no longer the Russians. This time, it's the Chinese. And, you know, so what, right? They changed the movie. Instead of the Russians, it's the Chinese. I mean, you know, they updated a little bit. Who cares? But this is what's got my friend so worried. The Russians are making this movie. Anna Chapman has this connection to Dan Bradley. We're not sure if she's blowing the guy, but there's definitely some Russian money going into this movie. Anna Chapman's father was in the KGB with Putin. Now, he's a high-ranking official in the FSB. So, it looks like a nexus between the highest levels of the Russian government and Russian intelligence to this movie. Why would Putin want to remake Red Dawn and have it star the Chinese. I mean, does he want to distract us? I mean, is he, like, planning a real invasion? Those are the questions my friend would have liked to ask Anna Chapman, 
but he can't because we traded her away for Igor and Sergey. I would be interested to read uh, his essays and book reviews because I'd like to see if I can get a grasp if he had some kind of ideology since right now after reading his stories and, and this novel he seems to me completely devoid of ideology sometimes from his stories they seem like presentations but they're not programmatic um, it sometimes it seems as if he almost unwittingly exposes the outcomes of you know socialist reforms it doesn't appear that he wanted to communicate, you know, his his criticism or um, disgust at the outcome. He was more, I think, betrayed than uh, um, angry. He doesn't seem angry at all in any of the stories I read. I was captivated, you know, from the first paragraph when he describes his hero as a person who couldn't continue living because he started thinking about his life. Um, and it's another one of his abstract, almost abstract characters. Somebody profoundly lonely. And yet, far from despair, somebody who questions. It, it is strange how his individuals begin to think about their own lives, but that's because they want to put them to some big task in life. He started thinking about the essence of things. And there's this one, I, I just found it. There's this one paragraph when he turns to two people quarreling, yelling at each other. And he tells them, how come you don't feel the essence of things? You have a living child and you're quarreling. And he was born to complete the whole world. This is very strange, but it almost it feels like this is exactly what one would want to say in uh, in so many situations it it cuts it cuts through all the it cuts through all the nonsense and goes to the most important thing in life um, there is nothing petty about this character or about Platonov.
This episode of Too Much Information is called Better Dead Than Red. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, and it featured Narenga Hojerova, Sonia Somak, Alina Rudnetska, and our TMI Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris. Special thanks to both Charles Maines and Tom Gilmore. On the TMI show page, you can find out more about the work of Andrei Platanov, the remake of Red Dawn, and Alina Rudnetska's film, Bitch Academy. And you can subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that's at WFMU.org. 